And when, when people come to meditate here at Spirit Rock or other retreats I teach in places, especially in the beginning, there's a kind of questioning, well, what is it for? You know, does it help reduce your stress? Which it can sometimes, or is it to get a particular state or experience happening? Um, and of course, there are a number of kinds of meditation, but in particular, the, the central meditations in the Buddhist tradition of mindfulness practice, loving kindness, compassion practices, are ways to quiet the mind and transform the heart, and maybe most important of all, to reconnect us with a different way of seeing or being. Um, There's a kind of knowing that we carry as human beings incarnated on this earth um, that gets lost in our daily rounds, a deep knowing, if you will, an innate kind of wisdom. And one of the beautiful um, experiences that I get to have in this very room Um, leading residential retreats, especially for a week or 10 days or a month or however long, as I get to watch people get younger. (laughs) I mean, I know we could sell this stuff in Hollywood, I'm sure of it, but it's a a beautiful thing. People come, and whether it's for a day, as we had a day long here yesterday, or a week or, or longer, and first when you sit down, there's a kind of unlayering, and so you sit, and the unfinished business of the heart may come up, the the grief or tears that we carry and haven't had time to tend to because we've been so busy, or the longing or the creativity that wants to come out, or sometimes the tensions that we carry in our body that get stored through all the complexity and multitasking and difficulties and subprime mortgages and all that stuff that's going on in the world, and then all of a sudden you come in and your shoulders are up to your ears and your jaws tight and you know, you've just been to help somebody at assisted living or somebody who's sick or whatever, and it's all in there. And there's a kind of release of that in its time. But what happens in this transformation is bigger or more um, fundamental than just that kind of release and coming to a place of some stillness or peace. Most or certain Buddhist texts um, begin with the phrase, O nobly born, O you who are the sons and daughters of the Buddhas, remember who you really are. Remember your true nature. Remember your Buddha nature. Or maybe another way in this opening phrase is to remember your capacity for wisdom and compassion, to know that you're not the small sense of self you tend to get lost in and think you are, or what's sometimes called the body of fear, this small way of perceiving our life. But within you is the great heart of a Buddha, is the, is the great wisdom of awakening. And this capacity to remember who we are and to live in a different way is the invitation of meditation. It brings a kind of transformative or universal perspective. And I was just at a conference at UCLA a couple or a few weeks ago, teaching with Thich Nhat Hanh and a few other uh, Buddhist teachers. And there was like 2,000 therapists, which Los Angeles needs. But anyway, that's a <laughs> whole other thing. And um, 
part of the conversation was about, you know, well, what is the function and the way that meditation, mindfulness works. And there are ways, as we do on Monday nights and in retreats, to teach the systematic training of mindfulness of breath and body and feelings and so forth. But a more fundamental understanding than that, even still, is that attention itself, mindfulness, allows for a shift of identity from who we think we are to be more playful in this world. Now, I've been looking for an excuse to, to read this story, even though it's only tangentially. Um, but it's, this, it's a moment for it. In 1969, right out of graduate school, I was drafted into the US Army. After I got new clothing, a haircut, and vaccinations, I filled out a stack of forms. One asked for my religion. Feeling rebellious, I wrote Druid, parentheses, reformed, uh, close parentheses. <laughs> Two weeks later, I received my dog tag stamped with my name, social security number, blood type, and Druid reformed. <laughs> I wondered how the army would administer last rites for that. Station stateside for several months before we shipped out. I was looking forward to a big um, weekend camping in the woods when the commandant canceled all weekend passes. But I was determined to go camping with my girl. Discovering there was to be a full moon that particular weekend, I requested a two-day pass to celebrate a religious holiday. (laughs) The commanding officer was skeptical. What the hell religion are you, he said. I told him I was a druid and that the last full moon before the winter solstice was our high holy day. He demanded to see my dog tags, so I showed them to him. He looked at them in stunned silence for a moment, then rode out the pass. As I was on my way out, he said, wait a second, don't you guys kill goats? No, sir, I said, that's the orthodox, I'm reformed. One of the problems with us as human beings is that we take our identities a little bit too seriously. And whether it's our religious identities, as we've seen in the kinds of conflict that are so widespread in the world, or our political identities, or all these other kind of identities, and we forget who we really are underneath it all. Kala Rinpoche, the wonderful Tibetan Lama, says, You live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality, but you do not know this. When you understand, and through meditation you come to an understanding, when you understand, you will discover that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. That's a pretty radical statement. You know, when you really look at who am I, you discover that the sense of separate self, who I think I am, is actually a fiction, and that you can't tease yourself out from the oxygen and carbon dioxide of the trees and the you know, frogs singing in the stream and the um, food that you place into this hole at one end of your body and stuff dead plants and animals in regularly and grind them up with the bones that hang down and then glug them through the tube in here. I mean, I don't know how you got into this incarnation, but here we are, you know. And you think, who are you? You think you're your body? 
So Kala Rinpoche says, you know, you live in illusion and appearance of things. Who are we really? At one time, the Buddha, in one text, was outside in the forest with his monks, and he held up a handful of leaves and twigs and grass, grass, and he said, if I were to say these are who I am, I am these twigs and leaves and grass, would that make sense to you? And the monk said, well, perhaps in some way, but not really. You don't usually think of yourself as the twigs in the forest. And he said, in the same way, you know, you grasp your body or your feelings or your thoughts, and you say, this is who I am. And the reality is not so. So you sit in meditation, and the different energies of the body come up. Pleasure sometimes comes, um, opening of the senses, difficulties come, pain comes. Um, And we live in a culture that's frightened of pain. So when you sit in meditation, I mean, the first habitual response is, I have to get rid of this. But the thing is, if you're afraid of pain or difficulty, then you're always running. And is there anybody that doesn't have it? Just kind of to check tonight to see. Okay, so it's part of, it's woven into experience, pleasure and pain and gain and loss. And so in meditation, the shift of identity begins to see that this body has waking and sleeping and opening and closing and breathing and all the, all the functions of the body and pleasure and pain. And our sense of not grasping and holding it becomes possible as we tend to it with a compassion and an awareness. Um, our capacity to be with the range of experience and you not, not be so lost in it. This from Annie Morrow Lindbergh, she writes, when the pain is great, go with the pain. Let it take you. Open your palms and your body to the pain. It comes in waves like a tide and you must be open as a vessel lying on the beach, letting it fill you up and then retreating, leaving you empty and clear. And with a deep breath, it has to be as deep as the pain. One reaches a kind of inner freedom from the pain, as though the pain that you experience were not yours, but the body's. The spirit lays the body on the altar. And so one of the things that happens as we meditate is we, we befriend our pain. We begin to discover that pain and pleasure and gain and loss and praise and blame, all those things will come. And instead of running from them, it's as if you can bow to them and say, oh yeah, this too. This is part of incarnation. But also it's not exactly who you are. It's just the pain. Everybody has it. Or the pleasure or the joy. And the same with feelings. I mean, feelings come like the weather. You sit, and um, I have in one, on one piece of paper a list of 500 feelings <laughs> that include affectionate, ambitious, angry, ambivalent, amused, antagonistic, antsy, apathetic, awful, appreciative, argumentative, Blissful, broken-hearted, calm, cheerful, claustrophobic, compassionate, concentrated, concerned, curious, delighted, depressed, disheartened, driven, ebullient, fearful, frightened, hateful, honored, humble, hysterical, glad, gluttonous, grateful, greedy, grave, jealous, jovial. I could go on, right? 
So we think, we believe our feelings. We take like our, the states of our body, this is who I am, and we take them all so seriously. I mean, we need to be present for them and we need to honor them. In the Lakota Sioux, grief was valued. It brought a person closer to the gods. When a person had suffered a great loss and was grieving, they were considered the most wakan, the most holy. And their prayers were believed to be especially powerful. Others would ask those who were grieving to pray on their behalf. So we sit in meditation and we befriend the states of the body and the play of emotions, the tears and the joy that come. This too is part of this incarnation. And the thoughts. And as you sit, you begin to notice right away that the thoughts think themselves. I mean, the mind produces thoughts the way the salivary glands produce saliva. They just kind of pour out this whole river. of There's the river of feelings and the river of sensations. And then, oh my God, it's the river of thoughts, you know. And the mind has no pride and it will think anything. And it has so <laughs> many views and stories and opinions. And not only that, you can have a view one day and then, you know, next week you have a different view about the same thing. And when you get really attached, you believe, my view. Forget it, you know. People who cling to views are not much fun. <laughs> you know that. You know, other people who cling to views, you know. Right? <laughs> Or that thing from Mark Twain where he writes, um, as, as so many of you heard this, where he writes, my life has been filled with terrible misfortunes, most of which never happened. You know, <laughs> they're all the stories that the mind tells. You know, and then there's, there, it turns out that they're stories. And so you sit and you see the thoughts think themselves. They're not you. It's kind of conditioning. The feelings feel themselves and the sensations come. So this isn't exactly who I am. These are parts of the play of experience and incarnation, but who are we? Well, are we our roles? I hope not. You know, your role as a parent or your role as a whatever job you have. I mean, if you're, for example, if you're a policeman or a policewoman and you go home to your family and you can't put your role down and you raise your kids or you speak to your spouse as if, you know, you're still on duty, your marriage ain't going to go very far, you know? Or if you're an artist or um, a business person, you know, or a meditation teacher, as I am, okay? If I go home, and when my daughter was a teenager living home, and I kind of come in and give advice and talk about the Dharma and so forth, like <laughs> she just would roll her eyes and say, Dad, why don't you go back over and teach to somebody who wants to listen to you, you know? <laughs> Because she just wants a father. She doesn't want somebody who's stuck in that role. And to the extent that we're stuck and believe our roles and can't put them down, again, we suffer. And even more fundamentally, you know, in the time of the Buddha, there was, uh, in the Buddhist, early Buddhist tradition, India was a, still quite a patriarchal society at that time and quite a racist society. So it's nothing new, even though, you know, it's, the, the suffering of it has continued for these millennium. And people would ask the Buddha about this, and he said, it's not race, and it's not class, and it's not caste, and it's not, you know, all these external things that by which you judge someone that make someone either noble 
or ignoble, either worthy or, or not. Um, it is only the heart of that human being. Just as he said, just as you can take different kinds of wood from the, you know, uh, an oak tree or a bay tree or a mango tree and burn and get the flames of a fire, so too every being has a flame of spirit and it is the quality of their heart, the compassion and wakefulness and generosity of that being that determines their nobility and nothing else. So who are we really? You know, when we look into ourselves, we have temporarily roles and we have to take care of the things of the world. Um, and yet it's not our, not our fundamental identity. Who we are is something more mysterious and wonderful and greater than we usually believe ourselves to be. In India, when you meet somebody, you greet them, the general greeting, you put your hands together and say, Namaste, which means I honor the divine within you. I see who you really are. And one of the things that I love about being in India is that when you meet somebody there, the, the, the conversation doesn't generally begin with what do you do, you know, which we do in America. You're kind of identified with your job. Hi, I'm Jack and or whatever person. Oh, that's interesting. You know, what do you do? Okay, I'm a, I'm a teacher or, a, you know, I'm an artist or I'm a lawyer or whatever it happens to be. We're so identified with doing, okay? In India, more frequently the question is what form of God do you worship? You know, are you a Shaivite who worships Shiva, you know, or a Krishna Bhakti? Or are you a Vaishnavite who worships Vishnu? Um, and isn't that an interesting way to meet somebody and say, hmm, what kind of, what form of the divine do you worship? That tells you maybe a little bit more about that person than what they do. Maybe also it's because in the old days anyway, when I was in India, people didn't do very much. You know, they sat around a lot. It was wonderful. They weren't so obsessed with doing as we are. So those kinds of identities can fall away as we begin to sit in meditation and a different capacity of knowing shows itself. The passage that I like to read from Thomas Merton goes like this. Then it was as if I suddenly saw the secret beauty of their hearts, the depths of their being, where neither sin nor desire can touch the core of their reality, the person that each one is in the eyes of the divine. If only they could say that, see themselves as they really are, if only we could see each other that way, there would be no more need for war or hatred or cruelty or greed. I suppose the big problem would be that we would fall down and worship each other. And so this secret beauty that he speaks about, you might call it Buddha nature or true nature, is bigger than, more fundamental than the, the roles and the thoughts and the feelings. And it doesn't mean that we don't honor our particular incarnation. You need to both remember your Buddha nature and your social security number. They kind of have to both be included in the equation or you can't operate. But if you forget one or the other, if you forget your social security number, that's a problem too. Um, or you know your zip code or whatever it is that allows you to function. But if you forget your Buddha nature, you forget who you really are, then you're truly lost. 
Now it's said in the old story that when the Buddha was to be uh, was, was sitting under the tree of enlightenment on the night of his enlightenment, um, one of the watches or periods of the night, um, when his mind had become very focused and still and silent, he began to look into this question of identity. And as the story is told, he saw that he had experienced birth before. And he said, I saw one and five and ten and fifty and a hundred and a thousand and a hundred thousand previous births. And not only my own, but then he began to look at all these other people that he knew and with the eye of wisdom could see their past lives. Now, you don't have to believe this. It doesn't matter. Um, There's birth and death every day and every moment. And that is the equally fine way to understand the teachings of Buddhism. This other stuff, um, it's true, but you don't have to believe it. You'll (laughs) wait. You'll see. You'll be surprised. But anyway, I'll I'll leave that for later. Um, I mean, do you think you're your body? There's got to be something more than that. Come on. Anyway, so the Buddha saw all these past incarnations or past births, if you will. And then he asked the most profound and uh, liberating question. He asked himself, in trying to understand, to whom does this happen? Who is it? that is born again and again in these cycles of birth and death, or even within one lifetime. You know, you're not the same as that little child or as that adolescent or that teenager or that young person or whatever. You keep changing to who is it that goes through all these phases? Because your body's really different than it was when you were, you know, one year old. Every molecule and cell, you know, all of those things have transformed. Who are we? And what he did at that moment in turning to ask who is it that goes through this experience is a little bit like sitting in the movie theater and seeing the, the, you know, a double feature. Maybe it's a romantic comedy and then a war movie or maybe it's a tragedy you know, or it's a cartoon you know, or whatever, all these different kind of movies and you get completely caught up in the movies and lost in them. They're very compelling. And then at some moment, you know, you start to rustle a little. Somebody's chewing their popcorn loud next to you. There's a gap in the action. And you look around a little and realize, oh, right, this is a movie theater. And then you turn back and see the projector and the light. And, the, you know, you're aware of the, the film that's going by, all those 35-millimeter images that are going by that are projected on the screen. And in the same way, the Buddha turned back his attention to say, Who is it that's seeing and hearing and smelling and having all these experiences every day being born again into this life of experience? And look directly at consciousness itself and released the small sense of self, the identity with all these temporary things and instead came back to what is called the ground of being, uh, the ground luminosity to the fundamental identity of who we are to one's Buddha nature, to pure awareness itself. Now, all this sounds kind of grandiose in some way, or it could, but the image that I like to use, um, which you will know very well, is much simpler. When you look in the mirror, you look older, right? Most of you, anyway. 
But there's this weird experience that most people have that they don't necessarily feel older. You know what I mean? Right? And that's because it's only your body that's gotten older. And something in you knows this. Oh, look at that. It's gotten older, hasn't it? It's lost some more hair here. You know, it's a little sagging there and things like that. It's what it does, right? But there's some part of you that knows, okay, that's just the body which exists in time and has its cycle of life and then kind of decay, does, decays. But the mind, the consciousness which perceives is outside of time, is timeless. And so consciousness looks and says, well, it's looking a little older there, isn't it? And this is, it's that simple. It's that immediate and it's that direct. And when we release the identity with body and feelings and thoughts, and we return to what Ajahn Chah called the one who knows, this place of knowing in us, or you could call it just resting in awareness. My teacher Ajahn Chah, he would say, you know, you get lost in all your thoughts and feelings as if that's who you are. Those are just the contents of mind. Step back, relax, rest in the pure awareness that knows experience, and you will be free. And if you go to Tibetan temples um, and visit different lamas and so forth, one of the things that you find among the the implements that are used for um, Dharma teaching and rituals are uh, instruments that are made of human bones. So I have a a thigh bone trumpet here, which isn't a terribly good one, and I'm not very good at blowing it. (coughs) Nah, anyway, I'm going (laughs) to give up on that one. Um, and, a, and a little drum here somewhere that's made of human skulls and so forth. And the reason that these are used, well, okay, I'll tell you another little story first. The reason that um, on Monday night class about 20 years ago, or no, maybe 17, 18 years ago, early on when we were in the, first in the community hall here, happened that Halloween fell on a full moon, which was already cool. It was Monday night Halloween, and we got a lot of candy to give everybody to kind of juice them up and make them happy and talk about, decided to do a whole talk about hungry ghosts and things like that, tell ghost stories, Buddhist. There's a lot of good Buddhist ghost stories. But then I got a phone call a couple of days before, a day or two before, that the Gandhin Shartsi monks were in town and they're one of several big monasteries in India um, which will sometimes send monks on tour who do that wonderful multi-vocal chanting, where they do one note and the whole chord comes out of them. Would you like us to visit on, on um, Monday night? Sure, you know, come along, okay. Well, um, and what do you do when you visit? Well, we, we can chant for you. I said, that sounds great. We also do llama dancing. I said, okay, llama dancing sounds, I mean, why not, you know? It's Marin, right? Let's see. The, so. so I invited, bring the llama dancers along. So... When they came, it turned out, and they said, we have several different dances. Um, And I explained to them that it was Halloween. They said, oh, great, we have a skeleton dance. And so these llamas dressed in these costumes to look like giant skeletons. And the whole group of Monday night went out and ringed the meadow carrying candles out there and by the community hall under the full moonlight. And then these llamas did their symbols and their chanting. And then the 
the, the dance of the skeletons came out. And it was, a, it was a really cool Halloween, I have to say. It was a wonderful Halloween night. And the reason that these instruments and the dances and so forth are used is that they're an expression of that which is called the deathless. That beyond our identity with this limited body and thoughts and feelings and so forth is consciousness itself, is awareness that is outside of time, that is timeless, unborn, that contains all things and yet is not limited by them. So Alice Walker writes at one point, she says, one day I was sitting there like a motherless child, which I was, and it came to me, the feeling of being a part of everything not separate at all. And I knew that if I cut a tree, my arm would bleed. And I laughed and I cried and I run all around the house. I just knew what it was. In fact, when it happens, you can't miss it. And so it's not far away. It's something that we know, that our life is really connected with the stream of all life. And yes, we have this tentative birth in this particular form. But there's something so much bigger that we are a part of and woven together in. When I was just teaching at, at this conference in Los Angeles with uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, um, he decided to do a series of teachings the morning. I was going to do the afternoon and we overlapped a little bit doing a whole um, ritual for the, in support of the monks and nuns and people of Burma. And he called his talk, No Death, No Fear. And he told a story, that's one part of it, that when he had been a young monk living in the highlands of Vietnam, he received a message one day that his mother had died. And he wrote in his journal a line that said, a great misfortune has befallen me in my life because he really loved his mother deeply. And he said for a year or a long time, he grieved very much. It was a big loss for him. And then one night, he said, I woke up in the middle of the night. It was quite late and the moon was out. And I just was so awake, I went out to take a walk under the moonlight. And it was a full moon. And I was walking out among the tea plants, tea plantation. And the moonlight illuminated everything and it struck my skin and it felt so beautiful and soft and all of a sudden I realized that this moonlight felt just the way my mother used to touch me so softly and I had the deep realization that my mother had never died and that she was there with me in this moonlight and that she was here in my body as I moved and that I just had an idea that she had died, but that that wasn't the truth. That my mother, my mother and who I knew her to be, her spirit, was always here with me. He said, and as I walked between the rows of the tea plants and placed my feet in the moist evening, damp evening soil, I saw that they weren't my feet. They were our feet. It was my feet and my mother's feet and my ancestors' feet. And that we were all taking a walk 
in the moonlight together. He said, and then I, it was then that I realized that who I was was life itself. And I could never, I was never born and I could never die. And he looked out at all these, you know, 2000 therapists and he said, so if you're a healer, you know, or you're trying to help somebody, but you don't understand who you really are and what the freedom is beyond birth and death, you're not going to be able to help them very much. You have to come to your own understanding of this realization in order to really heal another, in order to be able to serve another in difficulty. You live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. And when you understand this, you will discover you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. Here's the alchemical tradition's way of describing it from Hermes Trismegistus. He says, perceive that you are not yet begotten, that you are in the womb, that you are young, middle-aged, and old, that you have died, and that you are in the world beyond the grave, and hold in your mind all this at once, all the times and places and qualities of life, and then you begin, can begin to see with the eyes of wisdom, to see the whole dance of human life. Now what happens as we remember who we are, as we start to trust the space of awareness, rest in awareness and say, oh yeah, today there's sadness or happiness, today there's pleasure or pain, today there's gain or loss. It's not that you still won't respond to that and blame might still feel difficult and praise might feel good, you know, and you notice that, oh, that's blame, that's not very easy. But somehow the the tightness of identity starts to shift and you become more transparent and open to that which is timeless. You know that phrase from the Ojibwe Indians. You know, sometimes I go about pitying myself and all the while I'm being carried by great winds across the sky. You know, there is a transparency and a timelessness and a graciousness that begins to come. And it's not far away. It just takes a moment to sit and take a few breaths and let go and remember. And as you get emptier, and emptier doesn't mean that you're not alive, it just means that things become easier. This from Chuang Tzu. He says, a drunken man who falls out of a cart, though he may suffer, does not die. His bones are the same as other people's, but he meets his accident in a different way. His spirit is in a condition of security. He's not conscious of riding in the cart, neither is he conscious of falling out. Ideas of life and death, fear and the like, cannot penetrate his drunken breast, and so he does not suffer from contact with objective existence. If such security is to be got from wine, how much more is it to be found resting in the Tao? So what happens as we meditate is this shift of identity that yes, we have our part to play in the world and yet, and yet there's a spaciousness and an ease and a graciousness that comes. And then we can play our roles but without quite the same grasping. 
Now, there are two theories about crime and how to deal with it, says this policeman. The anti-crime guys say you have to think like a criminal, and some police learn that so well they get kind of a criminal mentality themselves. How I'm working is pretty different. I try to see that human beings are fundamentally pure and good by nature. That's their birthright. And I affirm that during my day. That's my job. Well, the cop part of it, or the peace officer, here's how it works. Even when I get in conflict, I arrested a very angry man who singled me out for real animosity. When I had to take him to the paddy wagon, he spit in my face. That was something. And then he went after me with a chair. We handcuffed him and put him in the truck. Well, on the way, I just had to get past this picture of things. And again, I affirmed to myself, this guy and I are brothers. So when we got to the station, I was moved spontaneously to say, look, if I've done anything to offend you, I apologize. Now, the cop who was driving the paddy wagon looked at me as if I was completely nuts. <laughs> Next day, I had to take him from where he'd been housed overnight to criminal court. When I picked him up, I thought, well, if you trust this vision, you're not going to need to handcuff him, which I didn't. And we got to a spot in the middle of the corridor, which is the place where he'd have jumped me if he had that intention. And he stopped suddenly, so did I, and then he turned. He said, you know, I thought about what you said yesterday, and I want to apologize. And I felt such a deep appreciation. Turned out on his rap sheet, he'd done a lot of time in a couple of bad prisons and had trouble with the guards there. And I symbolized something for him. But I saw it turn around. I saw a kind of healing. So what really happens if you're going to explore whether or not this vision of true nature has power? Some people say you're taking chances. But if you're taking chances without love and vision, that, then you're really taking chances. Sometimes when I teach, I do a visualization practice where I invite people to think of a particularly difficult circumstance in your life. And um, I won't do the whole thing because it takes a while. Um, but then I will also um, say, when you find yourself in that circumstance, then let yourself picture or imagine, there's a whole way of doing it, that some great being comes to take your place, but takes over your body. So the Buddha or Kuan Yin, the goddess of infinite compassion, or Mother Mary or Jesus or Solomon or somebody like that, the Dalai Lama, whoever comes, you know, takes over and shows you how they might handle it. And one of the things that people discover right away, and you can even feel it as I, as I say this, you know, if you think about some difficulty in your life, and imagine if the Buddha could come into your body or, you know, Kuan Yin, the goddess of infinite compassion, how they would handle it. And people very quickly can tell me things like, well, they're a lot more relaxed when they go into that. You know, my body's all uptight, but when they go in, they're actually quite at ease with it, you know. And they listen in a different way. They're more respectful. They're less reactive. Um, they listen with the heart. They speak in a different way. There's a courage, but there's also a tremendous care and compassion or an openness. And what's true is that as we sit and let ourselves empty, let go a little bit, quiet the mind, open the heart, with this shift of identity, 
the expression of this true nature shows itself. And it's there, it doesn't take but a few minutes to touch back into. And sometimes when when one reads the old, oh, I want to take a pause. It's pretty warm in here, isn't it? Could we, those who are near the windows, open them a bit? And I know that the ones who are near the windows are going to be cold. Now, this is, this is how, how it works. <laughs> right, the one in the middle are roasting. Let's see, we could put the little turkey thermometer in the middle when you're cooking. The ones, you don't have to open them completely, but somewhat. The ones near the windows will be cold. So you are now changing places. The ones in the middle have had some difficulty, and now the ones near the window will take, out of compassion, take the cool air and allow it to come through. Yeah, thank you, Granny, for opening the doors, too. Should have said that earlier. So what begins to happen is that as the mind quiets and the heart opens, there comes all the spiritual qualities that one might deliberately cultivate, compassion, generosity, trust, joy, all of those things, they also come quite spontaneously. Um, so just a few, I'll kind of talk about them a little bit as the, as, as the mind quiets and the heart opens. From one Buddhist text it says, this is the final insight. Now you know how to be aware of every thought and feeling and experience without, and without uh, falling under its spell. Right, so here you are sitting, resting in the space of awareness, and the temptations, and the this is good and that's bad, and the judgments and the self-judgments, and all these various things, they come and they go. Um, and you can honor them, and when, it's, when the tears are there, you can weep as necessary, and when you know, the feelings of love come, you can honor them. But somehow you're not lost in them. And when you discover this freedom, there is now born in you exceeding compassion for all those, all those living creatures who do not realize this freedom, who have lost the essence of mind, the sense of who they are. And you will devote your life working for the sake of these others, but all your meditations have now cleansed away any idea that these others really exist separate from yourself. So there's a sense of emptying, and then what comes is a sense that well, here we are. What else is there to do? You breathe in and you breathe out. You sit and you sweep the garden. You quiet the mind and open the heart. And then, well, somebody's hungry, you know, you get food. And it's just as natural as that. With less identification and less being caught in the small sense of self, there comes a natural compassion. And it's said on the night of the Buddha's enlightenment, after he discovered this amazing freedom beyond birth and death, the, the freedom, timelessness, beyond all the experiences of the world, and came to rest in nirvana, in, in, in peace and, liberate, and a liberated heart. From this place of peace and liberation, he looked out over the world with the eye of wisdom and he saw beings everywhere wanting to be happy and so often doing the things that made suffering. And tears began to roll down his cheeks. It said in one story that when they hit the earth, 
they sprung up as the goddess Tara, as the goddess of infinite compassion. In other versions, the tears were just the tears of the great compassion of the Buddha, and he got up from that seat and went out for 45 years in the dusty roads of India to try to awaken as many people as he could from the dream of separation and isolation, to remember who they are. And so one can practice loving kindness and compassion, as it says in the Buddhist texts, and direct them to the four quarters of the world, in front and behind, above and below, north and south and east and west to all beings. But more fundamentally, when the mind quiets and the heart softens and opens, we realize that it's just us. The father of a two-year-old talks about turning on the television and unexpectedly seeing the bombing of the federal building in Oklahoma City. He watched as the firemen carried the limp and bloody bodies of toddlers from the ruins of the daycare center in the building's first floor. He says that in the past he was able to distance himself from other people's suffering, but since he's become a father, things have changed. He feels as as if each of those children were his child. He feels the grief of all parents as his own grief. This kinship with the suffering of others, this inability to continue to regard it from afar, is the discovery of our true nature, of the dignity or the nobility of our own awakened heart. And so we get quiet, and what comes is a natural connection and tenderness to others. And without it, we're really lost, you know. And it doesn't mean in this that with compassion somehow you have to go around and, you know, now your job is to get an air ticket and fly to Darfur and work in the refugee camps. That might be your job. But your job might be to, you know, raise a beautiful child or make a conscious business or just, you know, Find yourself in the circumstances you are and take the joys and sorrows that you are given and make something beautiful with them. Elie Wiesel, the Nobel Prize winner, writes, suffering, which is the source of compassion, compassion really comes when we see the struggles and the illusion and the suffering of others, suffering confers neither privileges nor rights. It all depends on how you use it. If you use it to increase the anguish of yourself or others, you're degrading, even betraying it. And yet the day will come when we shall understand that suffering can elevate human beings. God help us to bear our suffering well. And so as you get quiet, the capacity of the heart to both hold the sorrows of the world and the glories and the beauty of it expands. And you say, this is us. This is our incarnation. And you're able to enter it with the gift of compassion itself. And there comes as well a kind of natural generosity. Not because you're supposed to be generous, but because we want to, because it's us. We want to work, we want to create, we want to give. I mean, if you can't work, if you don't have something that you can give, it's really a loss. It's a deep sadness in a human life to not be able to give. 
And there's a tremendous happiness that comes when we're connected. I mean, people who are connected live longer. Even if you give people, you know those studies where people in a, you know, assisted living or a nursing home, if you give them a plant to take care of, and they live two years longer because they have this relationship with that plant, it doesn't take much. But more naturally, the Buddha says, if you knew what I do about generosity, the joy, the fruit, the happiness, you would not let a single meal pass without offering something to another. Not because we are supposed to, but because it's part of what brings happiness. And, and in the deepest way, it's the expression of the awakened heart. What else can you do? As part of Project Troubadour, I traveled with three New England folk musicians to the West African nation of Gambia to give 40 free concerts up and down the Gambia River. We took passage on an old cargo boat bringing salt and lumber to the far reaches. And when the boat docked, we'd scamper off, make contact with the village chief, and find a large tree under which to give a free concert. The children would gather first, curious to see who these strangely dressed people were, and then the grown-ups and elders. And we would play songs like Down by the Riverside and Oh Susanna and Buffalo Gals, Won't You Come Out Tonight? They kicked up their heels and laughed and showed appreciation that we'd come such a long way to visit them in their tiny African village. On board the boat, we met a remarkable woman from Sweden who made a trip every year to the leper colony at Bansang to bring supplies to the families who lived there. So when our do boat docked at Bansang, we struck up conversations through our interpreter and decided to begin the concert at once. The crowd assembled. Soon after we played our first number, I noticed an old man with no hands or feet, just stumps, dragging himself toward us across the sand. Then he stood himself up in the center of the circle, looked right at us, and smiled with joy. And then he started to dance. And he moved like no other person I've ever seen, as if on stilts, waving his thin arms, turning his fine head up toward the light, spinning in circles. Tears streamed down my face to see someone so carefree and happy. Our lead guitar was so overcome, he put down his guitar and ran out to dance with the man. They twirled together for a long time. The man with no hands or feet turned out to be the village chief. He had such a strong spirit that, they, that he was the one they wanted to lead them. And after the concert, he invited me to come and have a cigarette with him on his favorite rock nearby. I don't smoke, but I couldn't turn him down. Conversation was difficult, but passing the cigarette back and forth between my hands and his stumps was a communion of the highest sort. The chief's light shone out of his eyes like a beacon of truth, and in his tribal tongue, he kept thanking the great spirit for our visit, for his life, and for all the good things that had been given to him. When we remember who we are, what else is there to do but love, or give, or be generous? Not generous in a way that you harm yourself, not compassionate in a way that you harm yourself. The circle of generosity and compassion always has to include, guess who? Moi, as Miss Piggy says, right? And if you think compassion is for somebody else, oh, that poor person, they're, you know, they're suffering, and generosity, oh, I have to help them, I'm the person who has a lot and they don't, and so forth, you're stuck. It's still the small self somehow. 
In fact, it's us. And so to be compassionate, one serves others, including this one here. You also have to be compassionate for this one. To be generous, one serves others, and one is generous toward this one here. And it, it's so natural to us. We do know it. And coming to meditation is just a, I don't know, it's just a reminder. Consider the generosity of the one-year-old who has no words to exchange with you yet and instead offers up her favorite drooled-on blanket, her green dinosaur as big as she is, her cloth doll with the long pigtails and the soggy cardboard book. And if you were outdoors, she would hand you a dead beetle, a fistful of grass, a pebble by way of introduction, or just because. And if a moment later she wanted it back, it would be for the joy of the game that makes every gesture and every simple object a holy offering. In the same way, sun drapes a buttered scarf across your face, rose opens herself to your glance, and rain shares its divine melancholy. The whole world keeps whispering or shouting to you, nibbling your ear like a neglected lover. This from Alison Luderman, a wonderful poet. One of the things I love when I see people come on retreats is after a couple or a few days of sitting and walking in silence and meditation, not only do people start to look younger, they start to act younger. And people will go out and do walking meditation. And there comes a kind of embodiment. It's It's this paradoxical thing, you know, that we have to get used to that the human realm is one of paradox, that we have this amazing spiritual nature, and we also have this animal body, you know, which we feed and move around and, you know, and, and, and do all the things that we do with an animal body, which is perfectly natural and fine. And it's this amazing wedding of, of form and emptiness. And the beautiful thing that I see is people will go out and they'll walk on these trails in the, under the oak trees and the bay trees are up and the grass is here. And they start to do their walking and slow down a bit. And then they look like they're two years old. You know, and you see people, and people will come and report it. They'll say, I took a step and I haven't had a walk like this since I was a little kid. I saw this one little red bug crawl across the path and it was having its whole entire red bug life right in front of me. And I thought, you know, it, it doesn't even know that there are people and it's doing its whole incarnation there. And then I walked further down the path and I saw this. And there's this wonderful sense of being alive again in our senses, in our body on this amazing earth. Thich Nhat Hanh took the whole 2,000 therapists for a walking meditation. We did a, we did a first we did a, you know, a, this beautiful ritual for support of the monks and nuns and the people of Burma. And his monks and nuns wore their outer saffron robes that they never wear in this kind of beautiful ceremony. And we did chants of compassion. And he and I had written this statement of solidarity and asked all those who were in the room with us in the Buddhist tradition, if there's a a, a sangha gathering or a community of people, then for us to do something, we want to have a cord. So I read this whole statement that we'd made in solidarity and, you know, asking the Burmese government and the UN and people around the world to support the people of Burma and the monks and nuns. 
And then, would those who are in accord with this, so we can make this statement collectively, please stand. Um, Governor Schwarzenegger and his wife, Maria Schweiber, were in the second row. And everybody stood, including the governor I was watching, immediately. It was lovely, actually. It was a beautiful moment. It was all videoed. And then Thich Nhat Hanh took us all out for this slow motion walk in Los Angeles to touch our feet on the earth as, you, as if you were the emperor or the empress, as if, as if you were the queen or the king of the realm, with dignity and graciousness and wakefulness to be truly mindful. And it was a beautiful thing. You know, it was like watching a watching a clipper ship on a spring day with the sails trimmed just right, you know, and it's just moving across the ocean. This whole huge crowd of people moving with such graciousness and such presence and dignity, and everybody was kind of who saw them go by, wow, what is this? Life is not a journey to the grave with the intention of arriving in a safe, safely in a beautiful and thoroughly well-preserved body, but rather to skid in broadside, thoroughly used up, totally worn out, and loudly proclaim, wow, what a ride. (laughs) So we we have this paradox of this human incarnation to tend with compassion and generosity and trust and wisdom, and at the same time, to not forget who you really are. To remember. Generosity grows, compassion grows, trust grows, the capacity for joy itself grows. You know, we're so loyal to our suffering. We are, you know. Um, and I've told this story before. I was at a conference in Los Angeles, no, in Washington, with the, the Mind Life Institute that puts on these conferences for the last 10 or 15 years with leading neuroscientists and the Dalai Lama and various Buddhist teachers. And um, at this conference, one of the um, film crews um, went up to the Dalai Lama, a reporter with his big microphone and the, you know, the whole video camera thing and so forth to interview him for, the, for one of the television stations and said, um, you had a book on the New York Times bestseller list for a year and a half called The Art of Happiness. You're, you're known to be someone who is you know, a proponent of happiness, um, uh, even in spite of the tragedies of Tibet and so forth. Um, and could you tell our viewers, please, um, what was the happiest time in your life? You know, it's a perfect television question. What's the happiest moment in your life? The Dalai Lama got a little twinkle in his eye and he looked back and he said, "Mm, I think now. (laughs) Because it's now or never, actually. It is. And and the instructions from, from the Buddha, when we remember who we are, is not that you be loyal to your suffering, but that you rest in the heart of wisdom and compassion or love. He says, live in joy, in love, even among those who hate. It's possible. Live in joy and health, even among the afflicted. Live in joy and peace, even among the troubled. Look within, be still, free from fear and attachment. Know the sweet joy of living in the way. And this is really what changes the world. 
the world doesn't need more oil and it doesn't need more energy and it doesn't need more food. There are grain elevators full of food and there are starving people. What it needs is less greed, less fear, one person to another, one tribe to another, one race to one religion to another. It needs less greed and hatred and fear. It needs more understanding. And it's that which transforms us in our life, in our families and communities, and in the, in the world at large. Um, and it's radical and completely wonderful. I have all these other stories, but I'll just tell one to end. A poem which I read a few weeks ago, but it happens to be one of my latest favorites. So, Again, by this Palestinian poet, Naomi Shihab Nye, called Wandering Around an Albuquerque Airport Terminal. <laughs> and I've been flying a, a bunch to different retreats in the last weeks and um, ended up the last, uh, last trip I took spending two different nights uh, at, the, at a hotel at the, the Atlanta airport because the flights were delayed and so forth. It seems to be <clears throat> becoming more the way one travels on airlines these days, um, you know, a little more unexpected, you know. So you better relax. Oh, you could be uptight, but it's not going to help. <laughs> So quieting the mind, opening the heart, remembering who we really are, and then from this, living in a different way. After learning my flight was detained four hours, I heard the announcement. If anyone in the vicinity of gate 4A understands any Arabic, please come to the gate immediately. Well, one pauses these days. <laughs> but gate 4A was my own gate, so I went there. An older woman in full traditional Palestinian dress, just like my grandma wore, was crumpled to the floor wailing loudly. Help, said the flight service person. Talk to her. What's her problem? We told her the flight was going to be four hours late, and she did this. I put my arm around her and spoke to her haltingly. Shudowa, shubiduk, habibti, stani, stani, shwe, mi, fadlik. The minute she heard any word she knew, however poor my Arabic, she stopped crying. She thought our flight had been canceled entirely. She needed to be in El Paso for some major medical treatment the following day. I said, no, no, we're fine. You'll get there just late. Who's picking you up? Let's call him and tell him. We called her son and I spoke with him in English. I told him I would stay with his mother till we got on the plane and would ride next to her, southwest. She talked to him. Then we called her other sons just for the fun of it. Then we called my dad and he and she spoke for a while in Arabic and found out, of course, they had 10 shared friends. <laughs> and then I thought just for the heck of it, why not call some Palestinian poets I know and let them chat with her. <laughs> this all took about two hours. She was laughing a lot by then, telling about her life, answering questions. She had pulled a sack of homemade mamul cookies Little powdered, sugary, crumbly mounds stuffed with dates and nuts out of her bag and was offering them to all the people at the gate. To my amazement, not a single person declined. It was like a sacrament. The traveler from Argentina, the traveler from California, the lovely woman from Laredo, we were all covered with the same powdered sugar and smiling. 
there are no better cookies. And then the airline broke out free beverages from huge coolers. And I noticed my new best friend, by now we were holding hands, had a potted plant poking out of her bag, some medicinal thing with green furry leaves. Such an old country traveling tradition, always carry a plant, always stay rooted somewhere. And I looked around that gate of late and weary ones and thought, this is the world I want to live in, the shared world. Not a single person in this gate, once the crying of confusion stopped, has seemed apprehensive about any other person. They all took the cookies. I wanted to hug these other people too. This can still happen anywhere. Not everything is lost. So let's sit for a moment. Quiet the mind, open the heart. And remember, who are we really? What matters in this journey of life, this incarnation we've been gifted in? I'd like us to end the evening with a very simple chant and then we'll go out into this autumn night, cool autumn evening. And the chant is this. Um, Remember how I talked about the greeting in India, namaste, when you put your hands together and I honor the divine within you, I honor who you really are. Well, the root of the word namaste in Sanskrit is the word namo, which starts many Buddhist texts, and it means to bow to or honor or pay respects to. So what I'd like us to do is to chant Namo nine times. And as you do, you can feel what it is that you're called to bow to. It might be to your own true nature that you've forgotten sometimes, or to someone that you think of in love, or to some difficult situation that needs tending and respect in your life or in the world, or to some gift that's come. Whatever you like, bowing is up to you to find that offering.
filled with blessings. May you remember who you really are. Thank you. Good night. Thank you for your kind attention, for your generosity, for the support coming in and as you leave. And um, Please come on retreat sometime if you wish. It's quite a wonderful thing to do. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.